People often say, I don't mind Jesus, but I've got a problem with the church. I think organized religion has lost its monopoly on spirituality. I don't need to be part of a church in order to follow God. I want to follow God, find God on my own terms. And sometimes people will say to me, I understand that Jesus went around spreading his message, but did he really intend to start a movement? I mean, look at all the problems we've got. Did Jesus actually intend to create the Christian church? And if you're asking that question, it's the right question. And the answer to that question is an emphatic yes. Because even the most critical of scholars will agree that one of the first things that Jesus ever did was appoint 12 people to be his apostles, to be his representatives. And that number was highly significant. It was pointing to the 12 ancient tribes of Israel. This was not random. This was a deliberate move. And everyone would have understood what Jesus was doing. If a political leader arose and went down to Washington, D.C. and appointed 50 people to be his or her representatives, everyone would know that those people were meant to represent the 50 states. So when Jesus appoints 12 people to be his apostles, he was signaling that he was creating something new. He was redefining what it means to be the people of God. Now, we're in the midst of a series in which we're exploring the authentic Jesus. We're taking a close look at the primary sources of the Gospels in order to try to figure out who Jesus is, what he did, and why he matters. And today we turn to the rather remarkable moment when Jesus first calls some of those disciples to himself. And as we look at this passage, we see that it reveals three essential aspects of any Christian community. And you need all three in order to be a vital, thriving church. And those three aspects are worship, fellowship, and mission. So let's take a look. Let me invite you to open up a Bible to Luke chapter 5. You'll find the passage on page 860 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. 
And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Well, the first essential element of any vital, thriving church is worship, but worship of a particular kind. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman beside a well, and he engages in a theological conversation with her about worship. And he says that the time is coming, in fact, it's now here, when the true worshipers of God will worship God in spirit and in truth. So do you see that real worship involves spirit and truth, truth and grace, power and love, awe and intimacy. You see, if you have intimacy without awe, well, then you turn God into a doting grandfather who essentially indulges your worst impulses, simply wishes you to be happy in your own way. Or if, on the other hand, you have awe without intimacy, well, then you turn God into some kind of imposing authority figure who maybe lays down the law and tells you the way it's supposed to be, but there's no relationship. So you see, you need both. A real encounter with God will lead to both awe and intimacy. Not just sober dignity like you might experience at a funeral, or not just warm and fuzzy feelings like you might experience at a pep rally. No, power and love, truth and grace, awe and intimacy. And this passage shows us what that means. See, first of all, you have to experience truth. The passage opens by telling us that Jesus had attracted a massive crowd, so much so that he has to commandeer a boat. I love this. The, the fishermen hop out of the boat, so Jesus hops in. And then he asks the captain, Simon Peter, to shove off a little bit from land so that he can address the crowd. See, Jesus understood that sound carries over water. And so he turns this lake into a natural amphitheater. But there's something I want you to notice that's rather remarkable here in verse 1. It's so subtle that you might slide right past it. Notice how casually, almost unconsciously, Luke identifies the word of Jesus with the word of God. Did you notice that? He tells us in verse 1 that the crowds were pressing in to hear the word of God. They were pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God so that whatever Jesus says, God says. And what does that show us? What shows us that wherever God is present, there is a insatiable hunger for truth. Wherever God is really present, there's an insatiable hunger for truth. But it's not the kind of truth that you can learn in a classroom or read in a book. This is the kind of truth that you only discover through a close relationship with Jesus. To be a Christian, therefore, it means to be a disciple. It means to become a student, to become an apprentice of Jesus. That's why in Mark chapter 3, when Mark describes the moment that Jesus calls the 12 apostles to himself, he calls them to be with him. And that's a near technical term for discipleship. It meant that they were called to live with him and to learn from him. So have you ever longed to discover that kind of truth, the truth that you could only find through Jesus, the truth of who you are, the truth of your life, the truth of this world, the truth of your relationships. Well, how does that happen? Frankly, let me say that you cannot discover that truth simply by showing up on a Sunday to hear a good sermon. 
And you're not going to discover that kind of truth by whizzing through your Bible for five minutes in the morning looking for an inspirational verse or a little pick-me-up. No, in order to discover the truth, you have to devote yourself to Jesus' teaching. You have to think. You have to reflect. You have to wrestle. You have to fight to get that truth into your life. And then you have to listen to it. You have to listen to it. And that's what this passage is all about. Verse 4, after Jesus finishes speaking to the crowd, he turns to Peter and he says, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now put yourself in Peter's shoes for a minute. Peter's the fisherman. He's the pro. What does he know about Jesus at this point? He probably knows at most that he's a carpenter, at least the son of a carpenter, who has a penchant for public speaking. You know, public speaking is his side hustle. But he's the pro. And they just spent all night fishing, and they caught nothing. He knows what he's doing. In the ancient world, nets were made out of linen, which meant that they were visible to the fish. That's why they always fished at night, when it was less likely for those nets to be seen. And he tells Jesus that they toiled all night, and they caught absolutely nothing. So at this point, Peter's tired, he's exhausted, he's hungry, he probably just wants to go home, but he listens. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Master, we toiled all night and caught absolutely nothing, but at your word. Now here's the thing, Peter could have insisted on his better judgment. I know what I'm doing, I'm the expert. He could have appealed to his desires. I'm tired, I'm hungry, just want to go home. Or he could have complained that the situation was hopeless. Look, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. This lake has been fished out. But he doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't make any excuses. Instead, he says, Master, at your word, I will do what you say. Well, what about us? What about you? What about me? Where do we find ourselves making excuses? I know better. I don't want to. It'll never work. Lots of people will come to me sometimes and they'll say, I know better. I know what the Bible has to say about giving, but I know how to make and spend and save money. I'm smart with money. I don't have to give that much money away. Or someone might say, I don't want to. I think I know what the Bible has to say about sexual intimacy and personal relationships, but I don't want to. It's my body. I'm going to do what I want. The heart wants what the heart wants. I can't help being attracted to this person. I don't want to do what Jesus says. I'm going to do my own thing. Or someone might say, it'll never work. I've tried. I've tried to break this destructive pattern or to get free of this addictive behavior, but nothing ever works. It's hopeless. I give up. So have you ever found yourself saying that? I don't want to. I know better. It'll never work. Well, if we do, if we say that, well, then it's no wonder. It's no wonder that we don't experience the life-transforming power of God flowing through our lives because we refuse to listen. We refuse to listen to Jesus and to do what he says. The problem with so many of us is that we treat Jesus like a consultant. You know the big joke about consultants? What do people do? They spend a lot of money to hire consultants to analyze the situation and make recommendations about what one should do. And then what do they do? 
ignore the consultant. But if Jesus is the master, we can't treat him like a consultant. We can't retain authority over our lives and then ignore his recommendations. No, we have to yield to him. We have to give up our autonomy. We have to submit to his authority and listen to his voice. But if we do, if we do, oh, you have no idea what he might do in and through you if you were to just listen. And that's the second part of what we see through this episode with Peter. Real worship, a real encounter with Jesus involves not just truth, but grace. See, as soon as Peter lets down the nets, there's a flurry of activity. It's, it's like he puts the quarter in the slot machine, pulls the lever, and then all of a sudden, boom, he hits the jackpot. And he's just being nailed in the face with quarters. He can't keep up with all the fish. They're, they're, they're piling in so much so that he signals to his business partners, James and John and the other boat, and asks them to, to come help. And they pile the boat with so many fish that the, the nets are beginning to break and the boats are beginning to sink. And they're, of course, astonished, and so would you be. But that's not all. Notice something more. He's not simply wowed. Peter is terrified because now he realizes that he has come face to face with something far greater than anything he's ever experienced in his life. And it makes him deeply conscious of his unworthiness. Deeply conscious of his unworthiness. And so he doesn't ask Jesus to stay which is what we might expect. Look, they just hauled in two boatloads of fish, two boatloads of money. You would think that Peter would say, this looks like a really good deal. Jesus, stay with me. Let's go into business together. We can make a killing. But he doesn't say, Jesus, stay. No, he tells Jesus to leave. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Now, you might think, well, what's Peter's problem here? Is he just struggling from low self-esteem or something? No. Do you realize that this is how people always respond when they come into the presence of the living God? This is what happens every time. Every time. Think of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 has a vision of the Lord, high and lifted up. And he sees the seraphim, the six-winged angelic beings surrounded with God's presence, calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah doesn't respond by saying, wow. No, he responds by saying, woe. Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a dead man. Because no one can see the Lord and live. And that's what happens to Peter. Peter realizes that he's now standing in the presence of greatness. It makes him deeply conscious of his own unworthiness. And he knows that he cannot bear the holy presence of Jesus. And yet, rather than receiving condemnation, Peter shockingly receives acceptance. Jesus replies to him by saying, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. But why can Jesus say that? And why can Isaiah see the Lord and live? Well, it's for the very same reason. In Isaiah's vision, one of the seraphim flies over to the altar, the place of sacrifice, and uses tongs to take one of the burning coals out from the altar. And this was the place where animals were sacrificed. An animal 
was offered up as a substitute for the death of a sinner. And so the seraphim takes that burning coal with tongs and then he places it on Isaiah's lips. I mean, think of the image. And then the seraphim explains, your guilt has been taken away, your sin is atoned for. Now you might say that's a powerful, evocative image, but it's just a, a vision. And that's right. It is just a vision. It's just a symbol pointing beyond itself to something greater. See, we can experience the real thing. The reason why Jesus can say to Peter, and the reason why he can say to us, don't be afraid in my presence, is because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Jesus will voluntarily go to the cross to die in our place as our substitute for the death of a sinner. And so when you look at the cross, when you see Jesus struggling, suffering, dying there, realize that's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. But he took it away. He bore it in our place so that he could say to us, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. But you see how a real encounter with God will unlock simultaneously transcendence and intimacy. This transcendent sense of awe and this imminent sense of intimacy. Truth and grace, power and love, awe and intimacy, transcendent, jaw-dropping, knee-knocking, awe, and yet at the very same time, personal, heart-beating, breathtaking intimacy. That's how you know you've come face-to-face -face with the real God who's made himself known in Jesus, awe and intimacy at one and the same time. If you don't have both, if you, if you don't have both, you have not encountered the real thing. They always go together. So that's the first essential aspect of a vital, thriving Christian community, worship. But worship in that sense, spirit and truth, truth and grace, power and love, awe and intimacy. But then secondly, fellowship. You see, this passage tells us that it wasn't just Simon Peter that left everything and followed Jesus in light of what he just experienced. No, he is accompanied by his business partners, which includes his brother Andrew as well as James and John, the sons of Zebedee. In the very next chapter, after spending a whole night in prayer, Jesus will deliberately choose the 12 who will be his apostles, and these are the first four. And so what does that show you? What shows you that Jesus calls you to respond to the gospel as an individual. You have to personally respond to the summons of the gospel yourself. No one else can do it for you. No one can ride into the kingdom on the coattails of someone else. It doesn't matter what your parents believe or what your friends believe or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your grandparents. You personally need to repent and believe. That's what we talked about last week. You need to turn from self to Jesus. But once you respond to Jesus personally, he places you within his kingdom. He places you within his family. And so what does that show you? Well, it shows you that the Christian faith is personal, but it's never private. Jesus calls you as an individual, but the gospel is never individualistic. And therefore, you can never say, well, it doesn't really matter how I live my life, or how I conduct myself, or how I raise my family. That's none of your business. No, if we are called to community together, then everything we do, everything about how we live is our business because we're called into the Christian life together. 
Jesus never calls us to follow him without immediately calling us to form a community of people who are committed to following him. So the Christian life starts with the individual, but it never ends with the individual. And if you're not following Jesus in community with others, you're not really following him. And why is that? Why does he insist that we follow him in community? Well, I would su suggest it's because the Christian life is far too difficult and it's far too countercultural for us to live out on our own. We need intimate, personal relationships with fellow Christians to help us think things through and work out the implications of the gospel for our own individual lives. Now, one thing I want to point out here is that there are two places in this passage where Peter's colleagues are referred to as partners. The first is in verse 7, and the word that is used there simply means business partners, fellow shareholders, stakeholders in the business. But interestingly, Luke uses a different word in verse 10. And that time when he refers to Simon Peter's partners, it's the same word for fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia, which at its root means sharing. Sharing a life together, sharing a mission together. So isn't that interesting? The call of Jesus transforms business partners into gospel partners. Now, I would suggest that oftentimes that word fellowship is used in a sort of sentimental, sometimes a sappy way. I, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll hear people say something like this where they'll say, we, we just enjoyed a, a blessed, sweet time of fellowship. And I, I, I think I know what you mean when you say that, but I'm not entirely sure. But what I want to tell you today is that the word fellowship is not merely some warm-hearted feeling you get from experiencing a like-minded commitment to Jesus, but rather, the word fellowship has some real teeth to it. Fellowship means a concrete, tangible partnership in the gospel that is secured by the Holy Spirit. It means that we not only share feelings or share commitment to Jesus, but we share life and we share a common mission and that's why Christians who understand true fellowship can say to one another, what's mine is yours. That's how you know you're talking about a real partnership in the gospel. You can say, what is mine is yours. See, Christians share with one another not only money and possessions, but relationships and resources, ideas and plans, strengths and weaknesses, joys and sorrows, triumphs and failures. But you see, fellowship does not nearly make it helpful. Fellowship is not merely helpful in terms of living out the Christian life. I would say that it is impossible to live out the Christian life without it. It's not just helpful, it's impossible. What do I mean by that? Well, I want you to consider all the passages in the Bible that command us to do things for one another. Think about all the things that we're told to do for one another. We're called to love one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens, to confess our sins to one another, to exhort one another so that none of us might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You cannot follow those commands by yourself. It's impossible. And so my question for you today is, how many people do you have in your life with whom you are following those commands? 
Now, these kinds of relationships, they, they can't be engineered. They can't be forced. They have to grow up naturally and organically. And oftentimes, it takes time. But you see, it is impossible to live out the Christian life if, unless there are people in your life who are following those commands with you. And if that's going to happen, people need to get close enough to you to see you for who you really are. And yet they need to care enough for you that they're willing to speak the truth in love. So is there anyone in your life who could say to you, well, no, it's not just that you get your feelings hurt easily. You're bitter. So why, is, why are you so bitter? Where's that bitterness coming from? Or is there anyone in your life who can say, well, no, it's not just that you get easily frustrated. You're angry. So where's that anger coming from? What's the cause of it? Or is there anyone in your life who can say, no, 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 it's not just that you're concerned. You're being eaten up by anxiety. So what's the source of that anxiety? See, we need close, intimate relationships with fellow Christians in order to follow these commands. Fellowship is not merely helpful. It is necessary for living the Christian life. Now, the pastor, Andy Stanley, likes to use three different images to describe three different environments within the life of the church. And those three images are the foyer, the living room, and the kitchen. The foyer, of course, is the place where you first welcome friends and guests. It's the first step inside your front door. And in the foyer, you welcome people and you want to make them feel comfortable so that they stay. And within the church context, you could think of our Sunday services as our foyer. And we want to do everything that we can to make people feel comfortable so that they'll stay and so that they'll get more involved. But you can't just stay in the foyer. You're never going to experience true life change just by coming on Sunday mornings to hear a sermon. No, you've got to get involved in the life of the church. You've got to get involved in the life of the community. And so the second image is that of the living room. Now, I know this is New York. Many of us don't have living rooms, and we wish, we wish we did, but just bear with me for a minute. If you had a living room, that would be the place where you would invite people to come in and to sit down. And that's where the real interaction takes place. That's where friendship is born. And see, for us within the church, where does that happen? Well, it's within our community groups and our men's and our women's Bible studies. It's by getting involved in the children's ministry or the youth ministry or participating in our young professional events. That's where you really feel the connection and that's where you learn to work out the implications of the gospel in your life and apply those truths to your heart. And let me just say that we need to dramatically multiply the number of community groups that we have on offer because of the growing demand within our church. Do you realize that the attendance at Central has grown by over 30% within one year alone? So we literally need more living rooms, real ones. And so if you're a member of the church and if you've been attending a community group for some time, let me give you a little heads up. Lauren and Chris and Abhishek might reach out to you to see, well, could you possibly open up that living room to make more community groups possible? Would you be willing to serve as a host or as a leader? But you see, we need to make that shift personally and corporately from the foyer to the living room, but then finally to the kitchen. And the kitchen, of course, well, that's where the magic happens. The heart of any home is in the kitchen. You invite the closest people to you into the kitchen to help prepare the meal side by side, shoulder to shoulder. 
our close, closest family friends and, and our friends and family members, we, we don't entertain them. No, no, no. Put on an apron. Start chopping some onions. We're going to make dinner together. But you see, that is where real community happens. And that's where real life change takes place. It happens around the kitchen table. And so how do you make that shift? You've got to shift from being merely a consumer of God's love and grace to being a producer of God's love and grace in the lives of others. Otherwise, you will remain stunted. You'll remain stunted spiritually. You're never going to really grow unless you get out of the living room and into the kitchen. And there's so many ways for you to do that. We need people to sign up for our Sunday service teams to help usher and greet. We need people to literally get in our kitchen and help Ray and his team serve the meal after every service. We need people to volunteer for our children's ministry, which is growing by leaps and bounds. We need people to volunteer for our various mission activities outside of the church, to partner with Safe Families for Children or with our ministry to the homeless through the Bowery or to participate in Reading Buddies, our tutoring program for elementary age kids on Mondays and Wednesday afternoons. But you see, you can't just stay on the fringes. If you really want to experience the life transformation that Jesus brings, you've got to move from the foyer to the living room to the kitchen. A lot of people will come to me and say, I'm so lonely. I'm so lonely living in New York City. I don't have any friends. And one of the first things I'll ask them is, well, are you involved in the community group? Are you serving through one of the ministries of the church? And more often than not, they'll say no. And I'll say, well, of course you're lonely. C.S. Lewis said that those who are waiting around for friends are never going to find any because friendship has to be about something. If you're not headed anywhere, you can't have any fellow travelers. But if you get involved in the life of the church, if you begin serving together, well, (laughs) that's where you discover true friends. And so many people could give that testimony that the moment that they began serving in the kitchen and the moment they began hosting a community group, that's when their lives were flooded with relationships and with all the good things that come from that. So where are you? You've got to make a move from the foyer to the living room to the kitchen, which means you've got to move into mission. And that's the third essential aspect of a vital and a thriving church. When you experience the transformative power of the gospel, Jesus propels you in three different directions. He draws you up into real worship of God. He draws you deep into fellowship with other Christians, and then he sends you out into mission in the world. See, there is no participation in Jesus without participation in his mission. And a church that fails to be missional fails to be a church. Because this is our very reason to be. We have a responsibility to share what we've learned and what we've experienced, what we've seen and what we've heard so that others can discover the difference that Jesus can make in their lives as well. And that's why Jesus tells Peter that he is going to transform his identity and his vocation. In verse 10, he says, In the past, you might have been a fisherman, but don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching people. From now on, you'll be a fisher of people. Now, I know at first, that doesn't necessarily sound like the most positive image, right? Because people catch fish in order to eat them. But think about how the sea was perceived in the ancient world, especially in ancient Israel. When we think of the sea, we think of 
a relaxing day at the beach. But the people of Israel were not seafaring people, so for them, the sea was a place of storms and shipwrecks. It represented chaos and danger. And so when Jesus says that he's going to transform Peter's identity into someone who fishes for people, he's saying that he's going to share his mission with him. Jesus is involved in a rescue operation, and he's going to invite Peter into that operation so that he too can participate in Jesus' work to save people from the forces of chaos and evil that threaten to diminish human life. Now, we, of course, can't save the world. Only Jesus can do that. But we have a role to play, both individually and corporately. We all have a role to play. A number of years ago, my kids had an aquarium in our apartment filled with seven glowfish, fish that glowed in the dark. But we were going to go away for a couple weeks during the summertime, and so we reached out to our friend, Mary Andronico, and asked if she would be willing to take care of our fish while we were gone. And she graciously agreed. The only trick was, how are we going to transport this aquarium from our apartment on 57th Street to Mary's apartment on 68th Street? Well, being the resourceful New York father that I am, I decided that I was going to put our baby stroller to work. So I emptied out about half of the water from the tank, and then I placed the tank on top of the stroller, and we began to make our trek to 68th Street, accompanied by all four of my children. Everything's going great until about halfway uh, through our journey, I hit a pothole in the sidewalk. And the, the stroller comes to an abrupt start, stop, the, the, the tank lurches, and, and, and the water sloshes this way, and then, then that way, and I'm trying to steady the stroller to keep the tank from falling, but unsuccessfully. The tank slides out of the stroller and then crashes on the pavement. And there are all these seven little glowfish flapping on the sidewalk as rivulets of water are flowing through the gutter down closer and closer to the storm drain. Now, this turned into an amazing New York moment. Because if I had been all by myself, what would have happened? Everyone would have ignored me. They would have walked right by, and they would have said, who is this stupid idiot <laughs> trying to transport an aquarium in a baby stroller? But no, 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 I was surrounded by four children who burst into tears at the sight of their glowfish on the sidewalk, and everyone sprung into action. 10 to 15 people are walking by. Some begin scooping the fish out of the gutter, trying to get them just before they fall down the drain. Others are picking up the shards of glass from the sidewalk so no one gets cut. It was a really hot day, so people were walking around drinking water. Thankfully, I had a little mason jar in the back of the stroller. And so I handed out the mason jar, and everybody starts pouring in their water. And so as we scoop the fish out of the gutter, we pop them in the mason jar. We saved all the fish. <laughs> Not one was lost. And then I show up at Mary's door with a stroller, no tank, four crying children, and a mason jar filled with seven glowfish. And I hand the children and the fish to Mary, and I say, Mary, I'm leaving. <laughs> you were a kindergarten teacher for 60 years. You can handle this, but I need to get to the pet store real quick to buy a new tank. Everyone had a role to play. But what I want you to realize is that 
Jesus is inviting us into a rescue operation that is so much more important than rescuing glowfish. Look, all of us, all of us, we have friends, we have family members, we have neighbors, we have colleagues who are flapping about, desperately trying to breathe, unable to rescue themselves from the chaos of their lives. And Jesus is on a rescue mission to deliver them, to do for them what they could never do for themselves. And the question is, what are you going to do about it? We can't just sit here and soak on Sunday mornings. No, we have to get up and we have to do something. We have to become part of Jesus' mission to the world around us. So you see, there are three essential aspects to any Christian community, and you need all three, worship, fellowship, and mission. This church needs all three, or else we'll become lopsided, and you don't know what kinds of problems that will create. For example, you could have a church that seemingly is committed to mission, but if it's not rooted in the truth of the gospel, well, then it just turns into social activism. Or you could have a, a church that seemingly is committed to truth. There's truth apparently coming from the pulpit, but that's just because people like their tidy theological systems or they like to feel superior about believing things that other people don't, and therefore there's no real fellowship or you could have a church that seemingly is committed to fellowship, but maybe the reason why people come together is just because they're lonely and they've turned the church into a social club. But there's no real worship, no transcendent worship, no connection to the God who creates both awe and intimacy. Or you could have a church that seemingly is committed to worship. There's intimacy, people love the music, but it could just be emotional manipulation might just be emotional catharsis because the truth is never lifted up the truth of the gospel do you see that we need all three and you need all three in your life i need all three in my life so where are you weak maybe you're weak in the area of worship you've never really encountered the living god and that's why you don't know this awe and this intimacy this truth and grace that i'm speaking of well, then you need to lean into that. What does it mean to really encounter Jesus? Or maybe you're weak in the area of fellowship. And perhaps that's because you're too busy to move from the foyer to the living room. Or maybe you're too proud. Or maybe you're too scared. But that's the next step you need to take. Or maybe you're weak in the area of mission because you're really just a consumer. You can't be a consumer of God's love and grace. You have to become a provider of God's love and grace. See, Jesus never calls us into relationship with himself without drawing us into a community of believers so that we might learn to live out the gospel together and then he sends us out in mission, his mission, to transform lives and to make all things new. And imagine what might happen if you responded to that call when Jesus says to you, put out into the deep and let down your nets. Well, you might think, you know what? This is New York City. This place has been fished out. But if you listen, if you listen, and if you do what the master says, well, he might surprise you and bring in a haul so great that it is going to break nets 
and sink boats. Did Jesus actually intend to create the Christian church? You better believe it. And we get to be a part of it. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to know where we are right now. Maybe we are standing on the threshold and help us to take that step into the foyer to experience who you really are in worship, in all your truth and grace. Or help us to take that next step from the foyer into the living room so that we might experience real fellowship, a real sharing, a real partnership in the gospel, and then propel us out into the kitchen so that we might roll up our sleeves and become part of your work in the world to make all things new. We all have a role to play. Show us what ours is today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.